Support for Industry Focus comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Home plays a big role in your life. That's why Quicken Loans created Rocket Mortgage. It lets you apply simply and understand the entire mortgage process fully so you can be confident that you're getting the right mortgage for you. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com fool. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. Today is March 28th, and this is the healthcare edition of the show. I'm your host, Christine Hargis, and I have healthcare specialist Todd Campbell on the line. Welcome to the show, Todd. Hi, Christine. Happy Wednesday. Happy Wednesday to you, too. So we are starting off today's show with a listener email. Isaac wrote to us from Wausau, Wisconsin. I hope I'm saying that correctly. He's a shareholder in Geron, ticker symbol G-E-R-N, one of the most volatile companies I have dug into in a while, which has partnered, ironically, with one of the most stable, Johnson & Johnson. The two have been working on developing a drug called Imatelstat, and a recent surge in optimism has made Geron the best-performing biotech stock so far this year. Todd, what has investors so excited? We have a very, very big binary event that's coming up very quickly for Geron. And we're going to get into all the details behind that. But I think that it's kind of coming down to, will this company finally get to the finish line after 20 plus years of existence as a clinical stage biotech? And it's really going to hinge a lot on a decision that's going to be made in the third quarter by Johnson & Johnson on that lead drug and Metelstat. Exactly. So Jaron has been working with Johnson & Johnson on the drug since 2014. Currently, development costs are split 50-50 between the two, and Johnson & Johnson is paying Jaron some additional milestones as the drug progresses. And it has looked fairly promising so far in the clinic. And particularly recently, Jaron's CEO made some statements on their most recent conference call that implied that this drug could be an enormous advancement. Yeah, this is really, you know, this is this we're going to I'm sure that listeners are going to be on both sides of this. This is a very divisive uh, story in a way, because the the background here on this drug is, um, well, it, it isn't necessarily a home run um, that, that, that this thing is going to deliver on the efficacy and safety front, in my opinion, Christine. Um, there, there were, it, there are some dose limiting toxicities associated with the drug that influenced the dose that was used in the phase two trial that we're talking about today. Um, there was a clinical trial hold that was put on, um, this drug, uh, back in 2014, it was being researched in three different hematological cancers. Uh, clinical hold was put on there for, uh, as the FDA described it, uh, over concerns regarding the reversibility of liver toxicity. Um, that clinical trial hold was lifted later that year in 2014, um, but those trials never restarted. Instead, what ended up happening is Johnson Johnson stepped in after the hold was lifted and said, hey, we'll share 50-50 development costs, we'll cut a deal, where we'll give you a little bit of money up front and potentially a lot of money on the back end if we decide to, to, to take this drug all the way. And let's focus our clinical research instead on myelofibrosis, a disease where there's not many treatment options and there's a very poor prognosis. So in theory, the, uh, the bar is a little bit lower um, when it comes to uh, the safety end of things. Uh, and I think that the real, you know, the excitement for this drug is that the only 
The only medicine out there right now, Christine, if you can't have a, bo uh, a bone marrow transplant, the only medicine out there is Jacophy, which is made by Insights, a billion-dollar drug. Uh, the knock against Jacophy is that it just treats the symptoms. It doesn't treat the cause of the disease. And the thinking here is that this drug is will be different, that this drug will actually help to reduce the fibrosis that occurs in the bone marrow and that causes red blood cells to have to be produced in the spleen and the liver. Exactly. Right now, there's a 75% discontinuation rate for Jacophy after five years. And post-discontinuation, -discontinu median overall survival is just seven to 16 months. And so the hope here is that this drug could provide a second line of therapy after patients have already failed on Jacophy. Currently, it's being studied in a phase two trial, so about 100 patients who have already failed Jacophy. This is a fairly uh, large and burdensome disease. There are 3,000 patients that are diagnosed in the U.S. annually. But as you mentioned, Todd, it is a very important disease to be looking into because it is, it has such a poor prognosis. So there, uh, you mentioned earlier that there were some safety concerns with this drug in prior studies and other indications. And I do want to add on to that, that there was actually a little bit of a safety concern scare in uh, October of 2017, when the FDA uh, put out an information request related to this drug's risk-to-reward ratio in these advanced myelofibrosis patients. This led to an enormous rise in the short interest in Geron, which is people that are betting against the stock. And I think that short interest is a large part of the reason why recently we've seen enormous volatility in the share price. Yeah. And, you know, just to kind of tease that out a little bit, I mean, I, I think that we're, we're looking at this and we're saying, OK, we have this huge decision that's going to be made by Johnson & Johnson related to the outcomes in this IMBARC trial. You would think that if this was a completely, you know, a great drug that had no problems, that J&J &J would have already um, signed off on on that continuance. It's, it wants to wait until it has all the overall survival data in hand from this phase two trial before it makes its decision. I think one of the things that kind of got people excited, Christine, on the conference call with investors, Jerome's conference call with investors, was the, was the fact that the overall survival data should mature enough in the second quarter where a decision from Johnson & Johnson will be made in the third quarter. And I think a lot of people looked at, the, at a decision by Johnson & Johnson in March to, ex, to, to amend the trial, to allow for an extension phase, to continue to evaluate patients who are already in it uh, as kind of a, a, a bullish indicator. Um, but I, anything can happen here with the overall survival thing. I mean, we talked about where I mentioned the Jack fee is, is the, the knock against it is that it, it treats the symptoms and not the disease. That being said, studies have shown that it does improve overall survival. And you and I have talked about this on the show before. Overall survival is the gold standard. That's what you want to be able to deliver to, to, to really, I guess, win the marketplace. And Jacophy delivers on that. It, overall survival in the Comfort One study, I think, was like five point something years. Uh, it was like a one and a half to two year improvement over uh, patients who didn't receive Jacophy. So you've got a drug that does extend overall survival already on the marketplace. So then you look at it as the do no harm. You know, can this new drug um, secure an FDA approval if it, one, doesn't show 
you know, really big improvements in spleen volume. That was something that they based the Jacopi approval on was the reduction in spleen volume. Um, we've seen spleen volume reduction in Imilstaz trial, but it hasn't been to the same degree as we saw with Jacopi, and actually not to the same degree either as, as a competing drug that's making its way to the FDA from the cell gene. Um, so there are some question marks here that, that make uh, the J&J decision an, a, a really big uncertainty, a really big binary event. And that does make this an incredibly risky stock. I completely agree. For me, there are three main uh, question marks uh, when I'm looking at this. First thing, Johnson & Johnson has so much money, they could have just bought this company full out if they really wanted to. And so their reluctance to do so makes me also want to hedge my bet when it comes to this company. Second thing, in if we dig into the details of the study itself and what CEO John Scarlett was saying on that conference call that we've been talking about, he points out that they don't yet have median overall survival for the patient pool after 19 months of the trial, which is kind of a good thing that would seem to imply that the final number for median overall survival would be longer than 19 months. But the thing is, there's no control arm in this study. And so Scarlett is comparing the real world overall survival to the numbers that you're seeing in this trial. And the number that he comes up with for real world is seven months. And that's a little bit questionable. And I give a lot of credit to Stat News, which is one of my favorite biotech sites out there, for picking apart at this because they raise the point that that seven-month figure is from the original 430 patient group receiving Jacobi as the first time, or, sorry, as the first line of, of therapy. The vast majority of those patients didn't receive anything else, presumably because they weren't healthy enough to receive a second line. But those who did receive another line of therapy, whether it was another round of Jacophy or another drug, had median survival of 22 months. So whether or not Scarlett's comp is legitimate is very dependent on the baseline disease characteristics of the patient pool, meaning how sick were they? So which real-world patient pool is actually the most appropriate comparison? And right now, we just don't have that information. So combine that with my third question mark, which is that we don't have enough data either about the primary endpoints of this trial, which, as you mentioned earlier, Todd, are actually that shrinking of enlarged spleens and reducing of disease symptoms. We talk a lot about overall survival, but that's only a secondary endpoint, and it's actually listed as the fifth secondary endpoint. So given that the last patient dose in this trial started treatment in October 2016, I feel like we should have better, more robust data about the primary endpoints of the trial by now. But we don't. And when yeah. you press the companies for more information, they've been reluctant to give it. Yeah. I, I suppose in fairness, just to give Jaron's argument and some of the arguments of the bulls who, are, who support the company, um, you know, they're, they're arguing that you're not going to see the same level of spleen reduction because they're dealing with really, really tough to treat cases in their trial. Um, so these are these are patients who are are resistant, intolerant now to Jacophy. They're theoretically in the later stages of their disease. So that that's one argument. The other argument would be that this is potentially a disease modifying drug. So the question mark would be, OK, well, if if the safety, let's say the safety is clean, right? And let's say that we did see, you know, a 35% reduction, 35% of patients have a reduction in spleen volume. Okay, well, we can work with that. It's not as good as the 50-something percent that we've seen for Celgene, Spedratovid, and trials or um, Jacophy, but we can work with that. If it reverses fibrosis, 
then potentially now you've got a drug that that can I don't want to call it a functional cure, but that really makes that moves the needle significantly for this for for these patients. And you're talking about a life expectancy measured in years for these patients. So um, it'd be very interesting to see how this data reads out because I think that it could be uh, if the data is good, I think it could be transformational. You know, it could be transformational too for the company, right? Because if the data is good and J and J continues it, Jaron's going to get a pile of money from Johnson and Johnson. Absolutely. I mean, when it all comes down to it, this is a stock that, if all goes well, has tremendous upside, but it is so binary because they don't have anything else that they're working on. It really just comes down to what happens with this one drug. If it fails, they only have about $100 million in cash and investments sitting on their balance sheet, which isn't quite enough to really make something of of the company if this fails. And so wrapping up with what Isaac's question um, really was asking about was whether this company is a threat to Celgene. And so he's already a shareholder. He is considering either buying more shares of Geron or looking at initiating a stake in Celgene. And he kind of put it as a, an either-or decision, but I, I don't want to take the question quite like that just because I don't think that these stocks really are comparable just because Immetalstat so clearly defines the future for Geron in a binary all-or-nothing way, whereas Celgene, we've previously described it as an ETF within a single stock just because they have so much going on and so many partnerships across so many indications that they are a much safer way to expose yourself to the biotech industry. But all that being said, Todd, what are your thoughts on how Geron might potentially change the course of Celgene's future? You know, I, I and we'll, uh, the first thing I want to say is, you know, I've said this before in the show, diversify, 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 right? So keep that in the back of your mind. <laughs> diversify, diversify, diversify. All right. So I really what's at stake here, I, I think, or what the, what the, the listener might be asking is, Celgene made a big purchase earlier this year of Impact Bio to get his hands on a drug called Fedretinib, easy for me to say. Um, that was a drug that was developed by Sanofi for uh, myelofibrosis, uh, positive phase two trials showing a reduction in symptom scores, uh, improvement in symptom scores and a reduction in spleen volume. Celgene plans on filing for FDA approval of that drug by the middle of this year. So potentially that could get on the market by, let's, let's say early next year, Fedretinib could. Um, it, in trials, did well in both the naive patients and also in JAGFE-resistant intolerant patients. So to your point, You've got Celgene, which is this Goliath. I love that, the ETF of, of biotech, right? So many different hands to so many different companies and so many different drugs in this pipeline. This is just one of those drugs, right? Um, and Melstat, if, I mean, if, if the drug does well in its clinical trials, I, I don't know how this will shake out with use. You could end up with Jacophy being first line, Fedred would be second line, and Melstat being third line, right? I, I don't know how that's going to shake out. We just don't know. So diversify, diversify, diversify. I, I really would resist, uh, I guess, chasing the the run-up in Geron shares right now. I, I want to see this data. Um, there'll be plenty of time to make money. You won't catch, obviously, a, a massive move, but at least you'll have a, a, a lot less risk by waiting. Wise words, Todd. Wise words. Support for Industry Focus comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Chances are you're confident when it comes to your work, your hobbies, and your life. 
Rocket Mortgage gives you that same level of confidence when it comes to buying a home or refinancing your existing home loan. Rocket Mortgage is simple, allowing you to fully understand all the details and be confident you're getting the right mortgage for you. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com fool. Equal housing lender, licensed in all 50 states, nmlsconsumeraccess.org, number 3030. Moving on to the second half of our show today, we want to talk a little bit about AbbVie. Last time we covered this biotech was after their earnings report. I believe the show date was February 7th. And this drug called Rova-T received just a quick little mention from us. And yet, some news about Rova-T was recently enough to send this $150 billion market cap company down 13% in a single day. That's a drop of $23 billion in market cap. Yeah, I think that investors were pricing Abby for perfection. I would call Rova T one of the three horsemen that could drive future growth, right? It's um, part of their strategy to expand themselves or diversify themselves away from Humira, their top-selling autoimmune disease drug, into oncology. So you may remember years ago, they bought pharmacocyclics to get the hands on Imbravica. Rova T was another drug that they acquired around the same time with the idea of being able to use that drug to target solid tumor cancers, expectations have been high for the drug. As a matter of fact, so high that uh, management was hopeful that a, that a really strong showing in small cell lung cancer would allow it to file for accelerated approval after its phase two trials. Uh, data that came out, however, recently, as you alluded to, um, wasn't that great. And as a result, they're walking back that idea. And instead, they're going to wait for phase three data to come out. Yep. So when they announced the results on March 22nd for this phase two trial, they said that the drug shrank tumors in 16% of patients, which is roughly in line with chemotherapy historical data. Meanwhile, people were hoping to see something more like a 40% response rate. And on top of that, about one-third of patients developed fluid in their lungs, which is a pretty problematic side effect. On top of that, and another potential negative for why this drug is not necessarily going to displace others in the indication is that it would require testing for its target, which is called DLL3. This is a protein that's found on the surface of about 80% of cancer cells in small cell lung cancer patients. And so when you're comparing this drug to something that's already on the market like Keytruda or Opdivo that don't require this additional testing, Overall, I just don't think that there's a lot of optimism left for this drug. And meanwhile, it's not like they're discontinuing the drug, but I think expectations for it were a lot higher than they are now. There's been some back and forth. I mean, it seems like every time they present data on it, everybody goes, uh, that's not kind of, that's not very good data. <laughs> and then uh, sure enough, excitement starts to build and build and build over time for it. I, you know, I, I guess we'll have to remain, things remain to be seen. I think that there's still a big opportunity for um, this drug in small cell lung cancer. And that's because if you look at, we talk about bars being set high or low, right? If you look at late line small cell lung cancer, Christine, very limited treatment options. Matter of fact, if you look at the five-year survival rate, it drops off markedly as you advance in stages in this indication. Matter of fact, if you get to stage four small cell lung cancer, uh, I think you're talking like a two or three percent five-year survival rate. There's obviously a big need here for um, new treatment alternatives. Now, I, I, to your point, um, 
the data we've seen so far doesn't certainly doesn't mean that this is going to revolutionize patient treatment. However, it may become an additional tool in the toolbox. Uh, I think it's wise for investors to temper their enthusiasm. I think management, obvious management, had indicated previously that they think that Rovati can be a, a four or five billion dollar a year drug in peak sales. I, I don't know where they're going to come up with that number. I mean, but I think there's still the possibility of, of this being a significant drug. Um, that could contribute, you know, uh, revenue as soon as maybe 2021, depending on when those phase three trials read out. Yeah, I mean, if even if you look at those numbers, four to five billion peak annual sales per year, even if you believe them, and you think that this news will cause the drug from having those potential numbers dropping down to zero because now they might scrap it. I don't see how that justifies a drop of $23 billion in market cap in a single day. I mean, does it make their acquisition of Stemcentrics, which was in a $5.8 billion acquisition, seem a little bit less prudent? Maybe. But now I'm looking at this stock and it is a lot cheaper than it used to be, particularly when you consider that they have a dividend yield that's just under 4%, which for a biotech is fantastic. Yeah. And, you know, they had a patent decision late last year that kind of gave them a little bit more breathing room on Humira's patent protection. You know, we've talked in the past, in the past that Humira contributes about, what, 65% of sales. Uh, it's the best-selling drug in the world, about $18 billion a year in, in, in revenue from that one drug alone. And it looks like now it won't have to face off against biosimilars until about 2023. So there's a few years here where Avi can advance other drugs um, to market that may be able to, 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 to take some of the heat off of it with biosimilars start to, to eat away at Humira's market share. This, this Rova-T was just one of those three drugs that I spend a lot of time looking at. The other ones are Udipitacinamid, which is easy for me to say, and Rusinkizumab. God, I hate these words. Um, and both of those drugs, you know, uh, uh, are theoretically multi-billion-dollar drugs for autoimmune disease that are, that should have FDA filings for approval uh, submitted this year. So there's a lot going on here that could still help boost AbbVie's sales and drive its long-term returns. Like you said, it's a lot cheaper now too. I think 11 times uh, next year's forward earnings estimates. That's pretty reasonable. Yep, I think the conclusion here is that if you were bullish on AbbVie, this could provide quite an attractive entry point. All right, Todd, thank you so much as always for being here with me today. And as usual, people on the program may have interest in the stocks that they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. This show is produced by Austin Morgan. For Todd Campbell, I'm Christine Hargis. Thanks for listening, and Fool on! Fool on!